Michael pointed out a moment ago, we are well into the season of Lent, which unlike Advent, is not a time to be jolly, is it? It is a time of serious reflection, of honest self-appraisal. And lest that become nothing more than good intentions, which of course paved the road to hell, I offer this reminder from Canon Phil Ashley this morning, that Lent is also a time of action. We recommit ourselves to the call of a holy life, to life in Christ alone, both as a church and as followers of Jesus Christ. Amen? Our epistle reading from Philippians 3 gives us a fitting picture of what that looks like. Paul speaks of his previous life back when he was known as Saul of Tarsus, before he met the crucified and risen Christ. He was a devout Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Now, these were not clergy. These were more what we would call today lay people or lay leaders. They were very influential. And understandably, we tend to look very negatively upon uh, the Pharisees as we see Jesus constantly at odds with them through the Gospels. Unlike the Sadducees, who we might call the theological liberals of the day, our Lord Jesus Christ, though, actually took the Pharisees seriously. Much of the material that we have in the four Gospels are dialogues, often heated ones, granted, but nevertheless dialogues that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And some of them, most notably Nicodemus, actually became followers of Christ. In our Gospel reading, our, our Lord speaks of two men who go up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee offers thanks to God, but mostly it's just him rehearsing and reminding God of what a good person he is, is it not? Not like others, and I, in my mind's eye, picture him spotting this, this lowly Pharisee standing, or uh, this low, lowly publican, this tax collector, over in the corner somewhere, and it catches his eye, and he says, and I'm, thank you, I'm not like him. See, the tax collectors back in those days, these were not mere civil servants. These were actually corrupt officials. They were Jewish, and they were corrupt and considered traitors by their fellow Jews. All the publican can do is pray with head bowed and shame in his heart, God be merciful to me, a sinner. But Jesus says of him, this man went down to his house justified. That is to say, right with God. Now Saul would very much have identified with the Pharisee in Jesus' parable. But while on his way to Damascus to arrest some Christians, he met the crucified and risen from the dead Jesus, who struck him blind and said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because you see, when you persecute, as, as Jesus is implying, when you persecute my people, when you persecute my children, you're persecuting me. And Saul would understand what that double use of his name implied. It is a term of endearment, but often with a dose of something else thrown in, perhaps sadness or exasperation or grief, as is the case, for example, with King David, who in mourning for his rebellious son cries out, Oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It's Jesus saying to his frazzled friend, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And most poignantly, we see it in Jesus seeing the holy city 
Jerusalem near the end of his life here on earth saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. But our Lord is far from finished with Saul. I particularly like the way the King James Version renders Saul's recollection or Paul's recollection of that day in verse 12 where he says in the King James that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Paul says I want to apprehend that for which Jesus has apprehended me. We seldom use the word apprehended, do we? And as I thought about that, I thought, well, not the only time I ever hear that term is on the local morning news. <laughs> you know where I'm going, right? When some grim-faced reporter looks into the camera and says, two suspects were apprehended near the scene and are now in custody. That's about the only time we hear it. But that is exactly what Jesus did to Saul. He apprehends him. And that's what he does for all of us. If you think about it, not in such dramatic fashion, mind you, but no less real. Jesus apprehended Saul. And he brought him to the place where we all must go. Namely, to the end of ourselves. Because despite all of Saul's success and prestige, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, he came to see himself as spiritually broke, bankrupt. Verse 7, he says in Philippians 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth and knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. But there's no sadness here, you see. He says, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. That's a pretty good deal, isn't it? All that Saul gave up in becoming Paul, he now looks back and says it's all worthless. Especially when Paul came to realize that his righteousness, like that, like that Pharisee uh, there in the temple, that his righteousness was just an illusion. It's nothing more than self-righteousness. All of it, the prestige, the status. When Christ apprehended him, it became rubbish, or as the King James literally renders it, dung. That's why I love the hymn, Rock of Ages. Great Anglican hymn. Top lady says, I believe it's verse 3, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Paul continues in verse 9, expressing his desire to be found in him, in Jesus. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. English Baptist F.B. Meyer said of this verse, When God comes to find you, where will you be found? In the cardboard of your own goodness? I like that. Cardboard's okay for some things, right? It doesn't hold up too well. The cardboard of your own goodness, that's what our own goodness is about, about what it's worth. Or in the completed righteousness of Jesus Christ, which he, notice, wrought out on the cross. Again, one of those words we don't see a lot of, wrought, W-R-O-U-G-H-T. First thing I thought about was wrought iron. 
That's when you see a wrought iron fence, and you don't even see a lot of that anymore. Something that is wrought is something that has been forged in the fire. It is something that has been fashioned, and, and not just something stamped out somewhere. No, it's something that is forged in the fire, which, of course, has substance and strength added to it. And that's exactly what, what we receive. Again, another archaic word, but one that I believe very much describes the righteousness of God. It is something that he wrought out where? On the cross. On the cross when he became sin for us. Thus our Lord's verdict in his parable about the Pharisee and the publican. He says, I tell you, this man, the publican, who could only fall on the mercy of God, went home justified rather than the other. You see, our justification is almost always referred to in the past tense. As for example, when Paul will say in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, past tense, we have been justified by faith, we have now peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But you see, this is just the beginning. It's just the beginning of our journey. For Paul continues in verse 10 to say in Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. That's how he comes to know Jesus when Jesus apprehends him. But he says, now my desire is that I may know him. And so this is more than just knowing about Jesus. This is an experiential knowledge, a growing knowledge of Jesus, knowing him personally. Nor does it come easily. But then again, nothing worth having ever really comes easy, does it? Thus Paul tells us what it means to know Jesus, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Beloved, the same power that rose, that, by which Jesus rose from the dead is ours. It's not just something for, for Paul, but it's ours as well. Meaning what? That it is the life-giving power by which God continues the work of our salvation. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is that which fuels the fires of that next part of our journey. Those who are justified are sanctified. That is an ongoing process shaping us into the image of Christ by removing that which is bad and replacing it with that which is good. And knowing the power of his resurrection also means, as Paul goes on to say, that we know Jesus as the one who has given us new life. Not just a new start. Not just a do-over. No do-overs in life, not really. Or a mulligan, for those of you who are golfers. But rather an entirely new life. As Paul told the Ephesians, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him. That's from Ephesians 2. So Paul speaks of his desire at this point in his life, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and, are you ready for it? A share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So much for the health and wealth gospel. Amen. If this guarantee of suffering comes as a surprise to you, well, it is for those who are truly growing in their knowledge of Christ. As we grow in our knowledge of Christ and in our sanctification, we will at times suffer for being that kind of person. If this surprises you, I would also say you're you really aren't reading your Bible very much because you can hardly turn a page 
in the Gospels or in the Epistles in particular without finding the notion of suffering, suffering for the sake of knowing Christ. For example, in Acts 14, Paul, strengthening the souls of the disciples early on in his ministry, encourages them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations, many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14. Likewise, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange had happened to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, if this does not sound like grace to you, because we are saved by grace through faith, if this doesn't sound like grace, I offer this to you this morning from the pen of the 20th century German pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his classic, The Cost of Discipleship. And if you've never read that, I strongly encourage you to do so. Here's what he says about grace. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And it's grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Paul goes on in verse 11 to say that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's not read into this any element of doubt as if Paul is saying, wow, I sure hope, hope I can make it, but rather what one writer calls a humble and modest hope. In theological language, we refer to this as the perseverance of the saints. Paul puts it this way in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this, the goal, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's where he, it's translated in the King James, apprehended. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. I haven't gotten there yet, but one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind, referring, I believe, not just to, to Saul's old life when he was Saul as a sinner, but even his progress as a follower of Jesus. Paul says, I forget what was behind. Yesterday, that's all well and good, but he said, I press on, forgetting what is behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And all that imagery right there. It's, it's all from the athletic arena. It, it's the image of a runner who, the closer he gets to the finish line, does not get distracted, doesn't look around at the other runners, doesn't take his ease like the hare and the tortoise and the hare table, fable, where he says, oh, I can, I, I can take, take it easy. We all know what happened to him. Matthew Henry points out the English Puritan. He says, a holy fear of coming up short is an excellent means of perseverance. We don't ever want to be so confident of our own salvation that we somehow think, oh, I can just change gears, gear down a little, just take it easy. 
No, that, that's not how Paul looked at it. Now hear me well on this. The enemy of our souls will tempt us to do one of two things at this point. Either to minimize our sins and say, oh, come on, it's no big deal. No problem. You're doing fine. Don't sweat it. Or perhaps even worse, he will point us down the road to self-loathing and despair. Say, you call yourself a Christian? You've got to be kidding. I mean, why even bother? Just, just, just give it all up. Both of those in an attempt to have us abandon the race. Well, neither of those, minimizing or the self-loathing, is what the season of Lent is all about. It's about taking an honest look at ourselves, confessing our helplessness before God, and utilizing, as never before, the ordinary means of grace. Things like what you're doing here today, Holy Communion, worshiping, fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, being regular in prayer and giving of ourselves in acts of service and devotion to others giving of our substance to those in need and to support God's work, and so on. There is in Paul's tone a healthy dissatisfaction that should characterize us all. And not just during Lent. Yes, we should rejoice and be glad over the victories that we've experienced in our lives, but never to the point of becoming complacent or self-satisfied. I want to say, in closing a word to those of us, who are of riper years, you be the judge. <laughs> Think of it, again, as a race. We have passed the last turn. We're in the straightaway, the last straightaway that is aptly called the home stretch. My word to you this morning is this. And I believe if Paul were living in days, he would use this same metaphor, perhaps. Don't let up. Floorboard it. Pedal to the metal. I emphasize this because of our natural tendency for the inertia to take over. It does in our bodies, certainly, but in our spirits to slow down. Now, that's fine in terms of work. If you don't have to keep your nose to the grindstone any more than you have to, that's all well and good. But don't take your foot off the gas spiritually. Don't let it ever be said of you that you coasted into the kingdom of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's long been my observation that for many older believers, their latter years of service to Christ are often some of the most significant and most productive. And that is my challenge to you and to myself as well. To those of you who are of younger years, I understand. I understand. We've been there. A significant part of your calling as a follower of Christ is to experience the demands of school, the demands of work and family, getting your kids raised, and all that that entails. But make certain that you begin each day with this thought from Paul, as we read a moment ago. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the mark for the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Make sure that that is your prayer as you head out in the morning. Many years ago, we've been at Holy Cross now for, I think, eight or nine years. It was a long time ago. I heard Foley preach a sermon. I don't remember all about the sermon, but the phrase that stuck with me ever since is the phrase, finishing well. And I've told him this. I don't even think he remembers the sermon. Most of us don't. We, we do so many of them. But, 
But that phrase became, at that point in my life, a driving force. And it became a challenge to me. And I, and I often catch myself letting up sometimes, and I go back to that phrase, finishing well. And I invite you, whether you're young or old, somewhere in between, to join me in that endeavor. Lord Jesus, grant that each of us, from the youngest to the oldest, will live each day so that we too may say with St. Paul at the end of our days, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Amen.